What's wrong with saying great undies? Well, you can talk about films with a philosopher's zeal or measure them all by box office appeal. But for once in your life, be real. Be real indeed. And welcome one and all to Be Real Guys, the podcast you come to for your film reappraisals, at least a small handful of you. My name is Chance Solon Pfeiffer. And I'm Noah Ballard. And today, I think we're here to talk about some films with a, a philosopher's zeal, if you will. <laughs> I think there's no way not to philosophize about these sexy, sexy films. Sexy haunting. Oh, yes, um, very. All the phrase problematic f- might get tossed around a little bit. Yeah, sexual fairy tales, if you will. Sure. Sexual parables. Yep. <laughs> Some of them cautionary. Oh, all of them, I think, cautionary. <laughs> How are you, buddy? Um, I'm pretty good. I'm pretty tired. Uh, just got back from Washington, D.C. I was there all week for uh, AWP. Oh, yeah which is a, a writing and publishing conference that is hosted annually. Um, it moves around. Last year it was in L.A. This year it was in D.C. Right on. Um, yeah, I got to see some uh, some clients, got to see some friends uh, and some podcast fans out there. So oh, hello nice. to all them. Yeah, got to meet uh, Brandon Taylor, who's interacted with us a bit on, on Twitter, I think. And, uh, That's right. Told me that... Um, my takedown of Ryan Gosling was shady. Your so, La La Land takedown? Yeah. Nice. He said I threw a lot of shade at Gosling. Not undeserved, but he definitely said it was rare form for me, which I didn't realize. But I know I didn't agree with it, but should we tell the people what brings us here on this day? I mean, I think what brings us here is uh, psychosexual games. Absolutely. Uh, a couple weeks back, we reviewed Body Heat, which is a perfect setup uh, for these, the erotic thrillers of Michael Douglas. Um, an episode yeah. I might like to call the queens and king of the erotic thriller, because it's really like actresses who made their bones doing these parts, and then Michael Douglas, for some reason, being in Fatal Attraction, Basic Instinct, and Disclosure. All in like a 10-year stretch. Oh, yeah. And it's strange to me that they all sort of... Um, even though a bunch of people saw them, they're all remembered for just really like one thing, right? Cooked bunny. One scene, one image. Leg uncrossing. Yeah, Regrettable leg uncrossing. sexual harassment reversal story. Um, and I should say we're joined uh, later on by a little uh, a basic instinct expert. Uh, we're going to bring in Jacob Knight about halfway through the show to really unpack some Paul Verhoeven, if you want to know, uh, is the guy who made this weird in his entire filmography the answer is yes and we've got a guy (laughs) to tell you just how and why so uh we're gonna start with fatal attraction though right i would i mean we i think this one makes a lot of sense to proceed chronologically yes i would agree just in like so in the first one we have normal dad normal new york lawyer guy normal husband normal father and the movie sort of posits we can get into this in a second Mm -hmm. but what sets about this insane like action throughout this movie, this insane uh, 
you know, sort of misconnection between people is Michael Douglas, after a party, wants to come home and have sex with his wife. And he can't because, like, the daughter walks in. So then he has this this affair because he had this urge. And then his world crumbles around mm-hmm. him. Is that not the setup of the movie? I think basically so. Um, his wife is played by Ann Archer. The uh, the affair yeah. is famously with uh, with Glenn Close playing Alex mm-hmm. Forrest, who works in your industry, by the way. Um, I, that was such a I strange thing. I have a thing, couple a... publishing questions to ask you based on these movies. Well, I was watching this movie. I watched it last night at like 10 o'clock with my client, Nick White, who has seen this movie. It seemed the way he was like commenting on the scene by scene, like, uh-oh, here's something bad comes. Like, I think he's seen it a few times. Okay. And I... I feel like I saw this movie years ago. I cannot tell you in like what situation. Like I may have never seen this movie before. Okay. Um, and it was it was a thrill, like a haunting, haunting thrill ride. A look that led to an evening. We are attracted to each other at the party. That was obvious. You're on your own for the night. That's also obvious. A mistake he'd regret all his life. Now where's your wife? In all three movies, you have, like, evil sexual woman versus, like, ultimately, like, guy who's just a slave to his urges. Right, yes. If we could get to, like, how politically unsound all these are, like, pretty up front. That's a good way to put it. That's sort of what it is. It's these guys who are, like, horrible things happen to them just because they had a boner. Mm Mm-hmm. And sometimes because they joked about having a boner. Michael Douglas said as much in an interview about Fatal Attraction, by the way. He's just like, I just want to make a movie about how lust can destroy a man's life. And then he went ahead and made two more. So this one, compared to the other three, I think it presents on the outset this guy getting aroused and not having sex with his wife. The wife goes away for the weekend. And then he had met Glenn Close at a party and then sees her at another work thing. And then they, like, get lunch and then fuck mm-hmm. uh and then like she loses it right uh but like this one it never has i feel like the other two movies have this sort of like michael douglas question mark of like should i do this and this movie has the least of that like it doesn't really ever grapple with the moral question of like should he have sex with this woman right now yeah which I found sort of weird. And I watched this one last, mm-hmm. so I was sort of expecting that, like, you know, because in, like, Disclosure and even in Basic Instinct, there's, like, the lead-up to, like, will they have sex? Right. Or, like, what's going to happen when they're, like, in a room in an intimate setting together? Mm-hmm. But this one, in, like, basically the third scene you see her is, like, them getting together. So the moral ambiguity of doing the cheating is not really the conflict here. It's really just a From Hell movie with... Yeah woman you have an affair with from hell it's i mean this might well be the og from hell movie some really good like moments of direction i would say especially yeah like where um first of all barely any soundtrack which was oh yeah the the soundtrack doesn't come into like a half hour in or something which i thought was a really interesting choice especially compared to the uh real doll heavy dollop of style verhofen and barry levinson put on their movies right Um, also I think the movie, if not called Fatal Attraction, should probably be called Kettles and Faucets. 
this movie has a real thing for water devices. Yeah, it does. Oh, it loves water. Oh, yeah. Well, can we talk about the... So, I think a key component to all these movies, like, is the the sexual contact. Oh, Dev. So, this movie, like... I don't necessarily... Like, Glenn Close is not, like, my type. Mm-hmm. And then, like, the first couple scenes, because she's super 80s. I got that, like, ridiculous perm and those outfits. And then, like, her, like, it's, like, a lot of make. It's, like, it's very, I found her, like, frightening, frankly, like, in that first scene. I don't know if Glenn Close is anyone's type. She looks like nobody but Glenn Close to me. Right. Yeah. But then, like, the speed with which this movie then, like, downshifts into. It's dark. It is a cautionary it's tale. So, and at some point, the movie switches into, and I can tell you, it's actually it's the Madame Butterfly scene, the juxtaposition of her with the lamp going in and off, and him bowling with his friends and family. That's when it just becomes a straight horror movie. She leaves the movie for about right. fifteen minutes, there, and you're like, "Where is she?" There are some fantastic juxtapositional scenes yeah. in this mm-hmm. when they're on the roller coaster. Mm. So, like, spoiler to anyone who's not seen this classic film, you know. So Glenn Close, basically, she goes off the deep end for Michael Douglas. She's, like, suffering from what I read about was erotomania. <laughs> that sounds Which is an actual real, term. Okay. It's a real term. Or at least it has a Wikipedia page. Mm-hmm. Um, and she, like, thinks that her and Michael Douglas are in love. And he's like, no, we were just, like, you know, getting it. And he, like, goes back to his life. But she, like calls him all the time and like eventually comes to the house and then they like move and like change their number and then she like kidnaps the his his daughter with the page boy haircut right and then they like they go in that there's that great scene where glenn close has kidnapped michael douglas's child because she's so like nuts about him and the the mom is driving around real like after realizing that her daughter has been kidnapped like and the there's the car driving around and they're on the roller coaster at this the she takes her to a, an amusement park and they're on this roller coaster. It's an incredible scene. Yeah, yeah. Um, and if you want to talk about things that stop it from being camp, Glenn Close's performance, I think, for me, easily the best performance in any of these films, the single best performance. What do you think? It certainly has the most like range. Yes, because she has like this one has this is a three dimensional person here. I think even at you the know, as si- much she as this... forces a caricature to be a three dimensional person, right? Yeah, I mean Glenn Close is such a talented actress that someone with no real backstory whatsoever is a three dimensional character who like goes through an arc. And Nick White, when I was watching with him, made a really interesting point that I'll give him credit for is the fact that like. I said to him, there's no way that this movie would get made in 2017. And he said back to me, if it got made in 2017, it would just be a Glenn Close character study. Mm. Sure, like a Nightcrawler. Yeah, like a a Nightcrawler. Nick. Or like a one-hour photo or something like that. And it like maybe wouldn't be as good. But she has, if I can like make a contrast of moments, there are definitely some pure freakouts. Where she makes the oh, yeah. Adrian Lynn's microphones just peak, peak, peak. And then she right. has those great lines where she's sort of like arguing. The the iconic line is, I'm not going to be ignored, Dan. Which is an <laughs> unbelievable line reading. And then the other scene I love is when they're just, when she comes to his office for the first time. 
and the way a nice piece of Michael Douglas acting too, just how like available for to hear what he says she is and how completely like unavailable he is is a terrifying right. contrast. Yeah, it is. Yeah. It's interesting. Well, that's the fundamental thing about this movie that I think is fascinating and brilliant about it is because like at the end of the day, like up until a point in this movie, she's not really acting that bizarrely. Yes. Like if she's just a very earnest person and like really believes that they have a connection, she's not being psychotic. Right. Or has she's some just normal very hurt. level of human desperation or something. Right. She's just a sad person who like thought they really had something and then didn't. Right. But then you she reaches the point of like total like psychosis. Yeah. And total mania where it becomes like violent. Right, right. Um and I suppose, but that's the interesting thing too, and I think we need to address in the contrast of all these movies, is how much is the femme fatale character in control of their behavior? Oh, interesting. Okay, so because I think on this end you have like maybe very little. Yes. In the middle one, you kind of never really know. When if uh, basic yeah, yeah. instinct, and then in disclosure, it's like no, this this woman's just like a straight up asshole, <laughs> <laughs> right? Um, yeah, that is interesting. I think so. If I can sort of turn toward how I'm ultimately my ultimate sort of yeah, problem yeah. with this movie, and you alluded to it at the beginning, which is uh, it doesn't really have the movie doesn't pose that question: Is Michael Douglas doing something wrong? And I think for a long time, right, I kind of felt like. Well, he is doing something wrong. When she's like, you just think you can walk into my life and then, you know, use me up and walk out? It's just like, fine argument. That's exactly what he thought he could do. Like, Well, that's what's so subversive about this movie. And I think sort of where I land on like whether or not it's good is because it tricks you into sort of excusing Michael Douglas's behavior right. and then feeling reprehensible about it. Yeah. Because like the, the ethics of the the opening of this movie is like, yeah, they're just like cool New York adults, just like going to have a quick affair and then get back to their lives. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But then you realize later, it's like, why did I like think that was a thing? Yeah. Like, why did I believe that this ever was going to end like cleanly? Right. Yeah. But I think my problem is sort of like, if not a politically conservative turn, it makes the conservative turn by way of just like needing to wrap up the story which is like by making glenn close as crazy as possible and really ramping up ann archer's involvement to the point where it's just like ah well the good married woman should indeed like kill the sex crazed monster family photo fade out well this movie historically the ending was really shot because it tested so poorly and the original ending was that she commits suicide and frames him a sort of body heat ending yeah, sort of a body heat at the end. And then, like, a classic noir, like, the guy just gets fucked at the end kind of femme fatale movie. Yeah. And I guess it tested really poorly because people really, sadly, did not side with Glenn Close and thought she needed to get hers. Right. So now you have that iconic her coming out from the bathtub. Yeah. Which is a drowning amazingly scene. directed scene. Oh. Incredible. With the, oh, it's so good with, like, the he doesn't hear her because the kettle is on. And then, like, the dog's licking the water coming down, but he, like, doesn't notice. Oh, my God. Because it's a new house. Like, it's so... Oh. Yeah. 
It's so interesting. But you, and then like her, okay, the best part about that scene and the best part of like Glenn Close's performance in the scene is when she like is digging the knife into her leg. Mm. It's so like weird. It oh. doesn't mean anything, but it's so like weird. Yeah. But it means everything. Right. Because it's like she's mad. It's like her trying to say, like, stop doing this. Yeah. But she can't. Right. It's, um... Yeah. I think it's politics maybe... They may be pretty sound. I think it's a weirdly progressive movie made in the style of a very sort of conservative film. My problem is the their entanglement, and this goes back to Michael Douglas's involvement, they're... Paul Verhoeven never would have let Michael Douglas get out of this movie so unscathed. But it ultimately just becomes like a, well, she's a monster. We have to kill her. The wife is the right person to do so. By the way, I imagine like an audience of 100 Ann Archers at that test screening, like demanding that it end differently. Um, Right. Yeah, man. I just think it's an incomplete sort of artistic statement in that way. I think it's not. Yeah. Inevitably, it doesn't land on noir. It lands on parable and sort of fairy tale. Should we get to her rating? Maybe we should remind the audience how we get there. All right. Here's what we do on this show. All movies and most of life can be described with our rating system. The four categories are good, good, bad, bad, good, bad, and bad, good. The first good or bad refers to intellectual quality. The second is pure pleasure. Good good is easy, things that make you feel smart and happy, and that for both reasons you'd want to do again, like watching The Departed or Jaws or calling your pal to do a podcast with him. Good good movies make Noah say, Love that. Bad bad is easy too, things that bring you neither stimulation nor joy. Basically, you just wasted your time. Things like watching White Chicks or Wild Wild West, a conceptual double album of Christian pop punk. Bad bad movies make Chance say things like, I hated that. Good Bad, then, is something you recognize as worthwhile, but not something you enjoy. Schindler's List, Requiem for a Dream, most classical music, eating your goddamn vegetables. Good Bad is about being an adult, and these kinds of movies make Noah say... I mean, I'm glad I saw it once, but never again. Conversely, Bad Good is for your thoughtless inner child. It's Cheetos, it's late career Billy Joel, it's movies like Christmas Vacation... Honey? Kids? And Deep Blue Sea... Bad good movies make chance say, but it failed in such an entertaining way. Got all that? Now buckle up, because you're about to hear an opinion stated as fact. I think this is a pretty great movie. Okay. I think it's it's horrifying. It mm-hmm. is like very scary, and like if you are a sexually active male, it will make you <laughs> not want to have sex That's or meet anyone new. Tom Hanks says in Sleepless in Seattle. Yeah, so it's a pretty, it'll, it'll, you know, if you're at a conference with a bunch of strangers and you watch this movie and then you, like, try to rejoin them the next day, like, things might be pretty weird. <laughs> uh-huh, uh-huh. Um, but yeah, I think this is unquestionably good, good. You know, I wanted to, I really want to say that it's bad, good, you say that it's Oh, you want to say that it's bad? Good. Well, I can see the case being made for good, bad. Yeah, I know, I know. Um, but I don't think I can say that it's bad, good because the ex- the thriller execution scene by scene is just so good. I just yeah. think that it, I just think this becomes a parable for like, you know, people to be like, 
you know, don't do, don't hook up with a woman who will uh, burn the bun or boil the bunny rabbit. And it could have been a real <laughs> genuine body heat esque like entanglement. I just I don't know. I think it makes the ambitious. case for fidelity <laughs> like nothing I've ever seen. <laughs> Wow. I read this interview with Glenn Close when I was researching that she still claims that women come up to her on the street and say, you saved my marriage. (laughs) So where did you land? Oh, I think it's good, good. Sorry. You're you're with me? Yeah. Yeah, I think, I don't think it's great. I have a problem with it, but based on our rating system, I can't. You just have a problem with the politics of it. Um, I have a problem with its ambition and the way it handled its characters, but I can't say it's technically not good because it has 20 amazing scenes. Right, yeah, so. most of it's pretty. There are like some time. There's some holes, and like, yes, Glenn Close's character the, on the page is a caricature, mm-hmm. but I think she takes it to a place that like you kind of get it. Should we get to 1992's Basic Instinct? I don't know if we're ready. <laughs> I don't know if this podcast can handle it. But Should we uh, really ramp this thing into the movie stratosphere? Oh my god, let's have the pod. Let's have the pod of the fucking century. <laughs> Get ready to depart realism, folks. Um, All right. So we're going to get into Basic Instinct, directed by Paul Verhoeven, uh, starring Michael Douglas. Five years later. Michael Douglas. Five Um, years later, uh, opposite Sharon Stone. Yes. This movie, and you just have to know going into this movie if you haven't seen it before, it is a dirty, like, disgusting noir like it's it's noir by like the basic tenets you need to have to call something noir but it is a filthy film it is just ramp with violence and gore and sex and just like in fatal attraction and in disclosure the sexual encounters i would say are flashpoints to instigate the rest of the plot in basic instinct the sex scenes are the set pieces the right. entire movie is building toward these blocked sexual encounters that last minutes. You're just sitting right. there for minutes at a time watching people have, pretend to have sex. So basically, the movie opens with the the just super pornographic, like, sort of last third of a sexual encounter, uh-huh. and which transitions up completely out of nowhere into just a violent murder scene yeah, yeah. where a dude gets stabbed with an ice pick in the eye and then the rest of his body and then it's just totally covered in blood and we like just hang on to that shot for what feels like an eternity mm-hmm. until we transition into later that day yeah yeah um, and it's it's unclear who the woman is so it's a man and a woman and the woman's sort of like she's a very like physically fit woman with yes. like b- like blondish hair, but it's covering her face. Right. So we don't know who's committed the murder. Right. And then so Michael Douglas playing a detective, Nick Curran, uh, comes to comes to investigate. But um, we find out about him. He he's sort of a degenerate. He's been off the sauce and coke for a little bit, but he's being investigated for killing two tourists in like a ac- accidentally in quotes in a firefight. Right. Um, and so, yeah, he's leading this case with his partner, Gus, played by uh, George, uh, I don't know how you say that guy's name, Dunza? Dunsda? Unclear. Don't know. He's in Crimson Tide. Uh, he's one of those guys. Um, yeah, he is. And they sort of just have like a bad law and order shtick 
it's right. Not, their dialogue together is not great. And uh, so the guy who was murdered is uh, kind of like a washed up rock star. They trace it to his girlfriend um, who is initially sort of confused at their first visit to her house with her girlfriend, uh, Maxime. Eventually they do find Catherine Trammell, uh, played by Sharon Stone at her, this is set in San Francisco, by the way, at a mm-hmm. very fancy modernist, uh, seaside house. Um, she comes from money and she's an author of these like best-selling like romance novel, like, like erotic romance novels. And that's her alibi for the killing is that she wrote the novel of this premise of a woman who kills her, like her civically minded rock star boyfriend with an ice pick. Yes. Like in bed while he's tied up. Right. And that's exactly what happened. But then of course, ultimately, uh, Catherine Trammell and Nick Curran are on a, a collision course. A lot of people call this a cat and mouse game. That's not true. It's just a mouse, Michael Douglas, who thinks he can fend with this cat. And then he's also like, so he's in counseling through the police department and then he's also like fucking his uh his therapist yeah played by gene Triplehorn. oh love Um, that gene Triplehorn. yeah beth gardner dr gardner um yeah can i just say though before we really get into it this is the premise to a movie that would come out with nicholas cage like now that would go directly to streaming Yes, it's in, incredible, and we're going to talk to this with our, about our gu- with our guest in a second. Unbelievable this movie made more than a quarter billion dollars worldwide in 1992. Yeah. No, it's a really dumb setup, yeah. but it's just like has no shame whatsoever, oh, and it goes to such not. a fascinating place, and it ends so ambiguously Yep. Yeah. as to be just like despite its best efforts, like almost like an art film. <laughs> it's just like it's That's, it's so everything is done everything is directed so big yes that it's a spectacle like even boring shit in any other movie is a spectacle in this one you're correct yes it is a spectacle but the rhythms of it are still a it has that b movie quality where some people are like really hyped up and some people are completely sedated the performances make no sense in relation to each other it's a fascinating movie. Right. It seems both like like really low art and yet many a like gender politics scholar has written about right. basic instinct. It's an incredible synthesis of things. Essentially where this movie lands. So like after a while, after like interviewing her and thinking she's a suspect and then not and like whatever, it's all sort of leading into like the, the fuse has been lit and eventually it explodes with a sexual encounter. And this is what I think is the best uh, sexual encounter in the movie and like mm-hmm. just a brilliant like just a brilliant question that cinema can ask is so they're in the first time they have sex together he's he's not certain that she's not the killer right like she could easily be a violent murderer mm-hmm. and they're in bed together and she takes the white scarf that she's tied, that the guy has died being tied up with. Yeah. She ties him up the same way that she presumably has tied up the guy that she murdered. Mm-hmm. And then she does the same lean back that she, that she does in the opening scene that you saw. But instead of coming down with the ice pick, she just like falls onto him, which the thought of death in that moment makes him just like hit a tremendous, what he calls the fuck of the century orgasm. So the movie sort of asks like, what's, 
like, isn't it kind of sexy to think you might be like, like killed right. in the act? You know, like she's one of those like insects or something that like pulls the head off her mates, like right. after mating, <laughs> you know? And like, that is somehow, you know, in our like dirty, twisted human minds, like find that erotic. Yeah. Uh, and that is just like, but I can't say that any of these other movies attempt to analyze human sexuality in such a like perverse and like bombastic way. That's very well said and a very good setup for our guest. So uh, let's go now to our uh, Paul Verhoeven basic instinct, super fan and expert. We got 31 stab wounds. What was it? Ice pick. Speak to Miss Catherine Tremell, please. Is she a suspect? She's a suspect. I wanted to write a book about the murder of a retired rock and roll star. You know how she does the boyfriend? With an ice pick. She intended the book to be her alibi. I picked him up, then I had sex with him. You didn't feel anything for him, you just had sex with him for your book. In the beginning. Then I got to like what he did for me. You like playing games, don't you? It's nice. Well, our guest today is a writer for birthmoviesdeath.com and we are bringing him in here on the show as something of a Paul Verhoeven expert. Back in December he wrote a massive two-part career spanning uh, analysis of the Dutch director uh, Jacob Knight. Welcome to the show man. Hey good to be here. It is our pleasure to have you. Um, So this piece that you wrote this it's very long. <laughs> uh, it was quite an endeavor, I'm sure. Um, did you have to catch up on a lot of Verhoeven, especially the Dutch early stuff, or were you pretty were you pretty well versed? No, I. I mean, I've watched Paul Verhoeven's movies for many many years. He's one of my favorite personal directors, and there's a couple directors that I always hesitate to use the term expert, but. They're the ones that I spend the, most of my time on. It, you know, it's Verhoeven. Michael Mann is probably my number one, the guy that I know the most about him, or uh, Brian De Palma. And oh, nice. David Cronenberg is probably the other one. Well, at least in three of those, I, I see a nice uh, strand of provocateurism, maybe, that <laughs> draws you to them. I write regular columns, mostly on exploitation, mm-hmm. horror movies. Um, so yeah, the the provocateur aspect of it definitely is is right up my alley. Well, great. the uh, The title of the piece that you wrote on on Verhoeven back in December was a perfect perversion, and you really dig into uh, his legacy as a provocateur about uh, you know the ways in which he's misunderstood and the ways in which he is sometimes impossible to understand uh, the contradictions that kind of dot his career, um, and if. For some reason, people don't know Paul Verhoeven, uh, director of RoboCop, Starship Troopers, Showgirls, the new uh, film L, um, and a slew of Dutch films from the 70s and 80s that uh, Jacob can bring you up to speed on in this piece. Um, but I wanted to sort of uh, get at what I felt was one of the great lines in your piece and the line that really made me want to have you come on the show. Um, you say... Judgment became his currency, talking about Verhoeven, slyly scolding the populace as they strained to comprehend these twisted amusement park attractions, um, which is a great line. And so in Basic Instinct, for instance, you know, that's a film that came out in 92 that was called by some people homophobic, misogynist, called by just as many um, as like an achievement in genre film and a celebration of strength and sexuality from like a woman antagonist. You can have that debate about so many of his films. So I'm curious, let's start here. 
how and when do you think that judgment sort of became a benefit or a fuel to Verhoeven and his movies? I think the the obvious answer, I mean, for anybody who's familiar with his Dutch career, is that he uh, obviously made um, you know, Turkish Delight, and then mm-hmm. made you know, Soldier of Orange, which is a uh, pretty traditional war film. Um, but then he, and then he caught the eye of Hollywood by making these movies and these movies with Rucker Hauer, especially right. as he's also one of the ones who kind of helped kickstart his career. Um, but he caught the eye of, you know, Spielberg and Kathleen Kennedy at one point um, after uh, Soldier of Orange, because uh, they thought it was just a uh, remarkable genre movie and a remarkable war picture. And they actually recommended him at the time to make um, Return of the Jedi. He was one of the people who was going to make, who was recommended to George Lucas as a a person to come on and helm Return of the Jedi, along with many others that we all know. David Lynch was on that list, and Cronenberg was on that list at one point, like a bunch of people that you're just like, okay, well, I can't see any of these people actually. (laughs) When I read that in your piece, I, I a lot of images flashed through my mind about what that possibly could have been like for Verhoeven to do that movie. But, but I think the movie that's the most active rejection of, I guess, his more mainstream sensibilities is a movie called Spetters, which I believe is from 1977. Um, and it was a movie about dirt bikers. Mm-hmm. But it became a film in which there's a notorious, uh, awful, awful uh, gang rape sequence in the middle of Spetters in which women's sexuality is actually turned during um, a gang rape sequence to where he actually becomes bisexual or arguably homosexual. And that obviously upset some people. Sure. Um, and that's what lost him the job for Return of the Jedi is then people actually saw Spetters and they're like, holy shit, no way is this guy coming to Hollywood. In terms of judgment being a currency, it to me, Spetters is the moment where he was just like, okay, that's great. I'm getting all of these this Hollywood attention. That's amazing. I'm going to make this movie that's just going to upset everybody. <laughs> uh-huh really odd worldview and this really bizarre, perverse approach towards sexuality that he wasn't really worried about uh, it turning people off. Do you think he began to invite judgment intentionally or that he always was? Sure. I think, I think he loved it. He is a uh, artist who really, I don't think cares quite frankly, about your own personal morality going into the movie. And honestly, I don't think that he's necessarily concerned, and this is one of the the things that I really love about Basic Instinct, is I don't necessarily think he's concerned about his character's morality or his character's, especially in Basic Instinct and The Fourth Man, um, even connecting with an audience because um, it's all about studying these 
really awful, awful human beings. Sure. The way that they interact and they connect sexually and, um, you know, a lot of audiences, I mean, even as you just noted up front, like a lot of audiences watches, watch Basic Instinct and found it misogynistic. They found um, it, again, too much to take, especially in terms of the very raw sexuality, which was, you know, what attracted to him originally with Joe Esther Haas's script, which mm-hmm. is also a good thing to kind of point out is that their own work, a lot of the times with screenwriters um, in, especially Joe Esterhaus is probably the best example of this, who Joe Esterhaus is a monster. <laughs> if you look at his body of work, like he, he's just a, he's a complete pervert. He looked at it as pure titillation to where Verhoeven saw that as almost like a jumping off point for these explorations of these awful human beings that Esther Haas on the page might actually be endorsing and Mm. doesn't care at all. And I want to take that idea into talking about Basic Instinct, which was a massive hit, Um, made something well over a quarter of a billion dollars worldwide at the box office. Um, And you talk in your piece, um, you point out what an unlikely hit it was. I wonder if you could speak to that. What's interesting to me about Basic Instinct, and I guess what makes it so unlikely uh, a hit, is that it so embraces the artifice of cinema, let's say. Like, it at no point wants to convince you that this could ever happen in the real world. It's very <laughs> like a Brian De Palma movie in that regard, is that Verhoeven's very okay with the audience just being like, well, I'm clearly watching a movie. You know, that keeps uh, audiences at a kind of emotional distance. And I think that makes Basic Instinct come off very cold, which Mm -hmm. is always what has kind of surprised me about his movies ever becoming a hit because he's not really concerned with allowing you any kind of real relatable um, emotional in let's say like he doesn't want to present you with relatable characters. And that's kind of one of the big things with big movies is that a lot of people can be like, well, I obviously identify with the protagonist or I obviously hate the the antagonist with basic instinct with like Michael Douglas's detective. Like he's a terrible, awful misogynist ex Coke addict. Right. Right. Then you, then you watch uh, Sharon Stone's character. She's almost like an evil genius who's borderline psychic and always like one step ahead of the detective. Right. Uh, but it's about watching these two people, quite frankly, just fuck on screen. Like, yes. That was the big to the movie was, you know, Verhoeven said the entire time that, I don't want to make this movie without with actors who are afraid of being naked on screen. Like he meticulously storyboarded all of the sex sequences, uh, even more so than the murder scene. Um, <laughs> and even, you know, became much more uh, very close with Sharon Stone uh, in basically creating all of these moments. But I think that's also what makes it, to me, an unlikely hit is I think that a lot of audiences are terrified of 
a woman's sexuality being portrayed on screen in any sort of positive fashion. And Mm -hmm. Verhoeven is very, very, very interested in women who are in touch with their own sexualities or even, again, going all the way back to Spetters and Fourth Man and Turkish Delight. Um, They're able to even, they're so connected with their own sexualities that they're able to actually wield them as weapons. And that terrifies, like, especially male audience members in the United States. Let me ask you this, Jacob. Outside of the famous... Uh, leg uncrossing and recrossing. Is there a, a moment or a, a detail or a, a visual kink or to basic instinct that that you think of right away when someone brings it up? My head actually goes like to the um, kind of anti-reality parts of it. Is I love the club sequence in it. Oh yeah just kind of ducks inside and you have like it's like the most 90s club that you've ever been to <laughs> but the way that Jan de Bont, he was a constant collaborator with uh, Verhoeven in that he shot the fourth man and then he returned and shot this basic instinct with Verhoeven and man it's just one of the most beautiful looking movies and it becomes almost a and Verhoeven will himself like attach to this in interviews it's almost like a 90s vertigo. And if there's one line of dialogue that always sticks out to me, kind of more to answer your question too, is when he first, when Nick first meets Catherine and she just asks him point blank, have you ever fucked on cocaine, Nick? <laughs> yeah. I love that weird moment because he's so, and especially with casting Michael Douglas as, you know, Kirk Douglas' son and everything, like, he's got that, like, that raw American movie star machismo. Yeah. And this woman straight up challenges him with uh, a detail from his past that he, you know, she has no idea how he, she even knows, and B just confronts him with his own sexuality, and, like, that's, like, that's pure Verhoeven right there because mm-hmm. he just he wants to always keep you on edge, just as on edge as you know Nick is at that moment. I love that. I just it, it throw every time I watch it, I almost have to pause the movie because I'm like, God, that, that moment's just perfect. What do you think he's doing with the Michael Douglas persona? This guy who is sort of the leading man of the American erotic thriller at this time. I have a friend. Uh, a buddy who uh, is also a film writer who has this great quote about basic instincts is that it's a, it's a movie about misogynists and the women who want to destroy them. Mm. I always think that that's so ragingly perfect. What Verhoeven essentially is making for me is that he's bringing this very European look at uh, American archetypal figures and saying, like, yeah, Nick is a misogynist, and here's a woman who is essentially okay with violence and even makes her living off of, you know, writing violent novels and is okay with her own like of, like, rough sex and uh, could possibly also be a murderer the entire time. Mm-hmm. We're going to watch these two basically collide, um, and you're going to feel every not to be crude, but flesh slap that happens in this film. Yeah. 
I guess I answer your question more directly. I don't think he's consciously deconstructing anything, but I think that it just comes from him be, having a very detached European worldview and applying it to this uh, American, very kind of American over-the-top screenplay. And again, it's a collision of viewpoints. Do you use drugs, Mr. Mill? Sometimes. You ever use drugs with Mr. Boss? Sure. What kind of drugs? Cocaine. Have you ever fucked on cocaine, Nick? I think this movie, if I'm going to like criticize this movie, frankly, it's of Michael Douglas's performance. Oh, okay. Because of the three of these movies, he's so barely like there. Right. Like this movie is like a procedural B movie cop drama with him in it. And then it, when Sharon Stone enters, like it becomes a real movie. Right. That's true. But like he is just, he doesn't even have that many lines. Like he doesn't even have any lines in that. The, there's that great nightclub scene where he shows up in that like tremendously deep V. <laughs> And then he just sort of like rolls his shoulders at her. Stylish, but not in style. And by the way, we know from two of these movies that he cannot dance a lick. Because we have enough, like the script has enough meat that Michael Douglas could be a bigger and better character. Because you have the relationship with Gene Triplehorn, which is sort of his like, because all these movies have the femme fatale and then the like the put upon woman. Yes. God, and And she gets such a raw deal in this movie. Yeah, and this one, she's, like, the ultimate put-upon woman, because not only does she, like, inevitably take the rap, she's dead. (laughs) And, frankly, raped along the way. But what I think is so perverse about this movie is it needs... The problem that it deals with is it never wants to tell you who the killer is. So because it never wants to tell you who the killer is, it needs to give you a red herring. And the only way that it gives you a red herring is if you see Gene Triplehorn naked. Mm. Oh, that's true. I hadn't thought about that. Which is like the weird sort of perverse thing it has to do to be successful. And it's like pretty overreaching plot. Um, I have to say that it's, it seems silly to say this in this grotesque funhouse mirror of a genre movie. Right. But, I just don't think, I didn't buy its thriller mechanics. Not for one second did I think that Sharon Stone was not fucking with him. So it becomes this movie that where the plot is led along by this person who's like a genius. And I think Jacob in our interview even called her like, she's basically a mind reader of of, um, Michael Douglas because of her undergrad psychology degree. Um, And her best-selling novels. Yes. But it just kind of becomes this movie where, like, everyone does everything because that's just what they were expected to do, which is not, like, that interesting of a plot down the stretch. Well, I just think it's interesting in the way that it plays with our fears that we probably developed from a film like Fatal Attraction, Mm. because the red herring it throws you is that... Basically, Gene Triplehorn is fatal attractioning Sharon Stone. Didn't buy it. You didn't buy that. See, Not a I, once. Not for a minute. Because you. That's like what I think is so fascinating about the the character uh, of Catherine is that you know so little about her, and everything is a lie. Yeah. So like that for me convinced me that maybe Gene Triplehorn's like 
stalking her. Right. I think it would be silly to go through all this and not kind of like at least give some credence to what Jacob really talked about, which is just like, I don't think Verhoeven cares at all about what you think of these characters, what you think about the morality of these characters. That's just not his intention. He's not trying to give you a a character entry point into the movie, which is fine. I mean, but I might still want that. I might be the kind of person who might want that, although I can take what he gives me. I mean, it's hard in this day and age to enter a thriller without being given certain tropes. Sure. Because this one begins so aggressively oh yeah i think it does suffer from the fact that like it's clear from the opening sequence that this man does not care one iota about the sensibilities of his audience goer right um or his theater goer um but which, it's it's it becomes a little daunting to then like root for anyone which is kind of the thriller thing is like you see this person who you have to relate to in some capacity go through this like ridiculous thing and like come out somehow in the end. So what do we think ultimately? You go first. I think that uh, all due respect to Jacob, I know he thinks it's great. He's a big Verhoeven head. Um, I think that this movie is bad good. It is really, at least in our rating system, it is something to see. I think you could watch it a lot of times. You could pick out uh, some favorite lines, some truly weird moments. Frankly, I'm still you know, looking for character, looking for plot. Right. And a movie where everyone did everything already because they were a super genius is, you know, doesn't quite get there for me. So bad, good. Yeah. I mean, going back to our, like, our, I have to, I had to, like, go to the constitution of our <laughs> rating system All right. to sort of figure this one out. And if this one, like, if good, like, if the first good is, like, eating your vegetables. There's no vegetables here. No, this is a, this is a, (laughs) to use, like, a technical term, like, this is an icky movie. It's, like, fun (laughs) as hell to watch. Right. But it's not, like, it's not, it's not good for you. It doesn't ask questions that, like, make you a better, I mean, it asks some interesting questions. Yeah. That are certainly important to consider at one point or another, but, like. This movie does not have like great intentions. This like is this true. is this is a a provocateur like <laughs> just giving you something to chew on right. as a form of entertainment. But like yeah, it's bad good. That was very responsible uh by the tech. You're a real originalist, Anthony Kennedy. Way to go. Way to go back there. Um Yeah. But it's it's really entertaining. Oh, it's really entertaining. It's just different than our traditional bad good movie because it was never going for the thing that we expect a movie to go for. It didn't right. try. It was aiming elsewhere. <laughs> yeah, but but God, if you haven't seen it... It's on Netflix, by the way. And Fatal Attraction is on Amazon and Hulu. The, it, but it's unbelievable. Oh, yeah. you got to see it. You, ha- you absolutely have to see it, but just, like, one time. Right. And then, like, take a shower. And don't get mad at us for having told you to see it. Right. <laughs> Please don't. We don't don't send us any nasty emails about it. <laughs> oh man. Um are you ready to move on, buddy? To arguably the most troubling of the three movies. Inarguably. Inarguably uh, the most troubling of the three. But but like certainly like sensibility-wise, the least offensive. Sensibility-wise, yes. Just just like okay. watching it, just like aesthetically. Like it's not an offensive movie. There's no gore. There's no real nudity. 
it's just the questions that it asks are so like just sort of dumb and like like bigoted a bad idea for a movie and book mr michael Crichton. Right. <laughs> um, so not to spoil our, not to tip our hands too much but it's already starting with a pretty weak some pretty weak source material sure this is Crichton in his uh rising sun disclosure early 90s i'm gonna try some realism no need michael Crichton. But he asks, so the, the setup for this movie is with the same vigor that Crichton asks, what would it be like if we like reproduced dinosaurs? Uh-huh. Michael Crichton, and like to the technical level too, Michael Crichton looks at what would happen if like a woman accused a man of, or a, a woman accused a man of rape, but like was lying to fuck with him. Yeah. And which is like a pretty difficult question to ask Maybe then and, like, certainly now. Yep. This this movie is, like, workplace feminism versus workplace patriarchy. And, like, definitely patriarchy is the protagonist. Yep. Uh, because it continues... Michael Douglas stars uh, as... Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> In the goofiest of the three roles. Yeah, he... His wardrobe and hair are looking kind of bad by this point. Yeah, he works at this like this cutting edge tech company with the yeah. most Crichton name in the world, Digicom. <laughs> <laughs> oh, so so general yet so specific. Mm-hmm. The new vice president will be Meredith Johnson. Meredith, we don't know anything about this woman. I do. I had a thing with her, but now his entire future. Do you have a problem working for me, Tom? What are you gonna do? like I usually do and hope it doesn't get any worse is about to fall into the hands of a family now that's exactly why I can trust you you have a lot more to lose than I do of a woman from his past wait a second wait wait a second nobody has to know nobody gets hurt you can't just stop I'm not gonna do this no you can't stop as we alluded to before Demi Moore goes right ahead and asks him up to her office uh, on the day he finds out that she's got this promotion over him and has a bottle of wine that they used to like from the old days that they shared together. Um, Sort of is just like, come over here and rub my shoulders while I read you these schematics and very obviously kind of lures him into a sexual encounter. And he is... I guess, as you said earlier, like sort of into it for a minute, but then definitely not into it. Says like, no, I don't want to do this like 20 times. So then they like, they have this moment where like, maybe he's into it, right? Yeah. A little, uh, like just, he's like, yeah, he's like, oh, you want it? This is, you want to get fucked? That's the quote. (laughs) That's the quote. That is the, that is the quote. And cause that's, that's what's so upsetting about this movie is that it asks some like pretty progressive questions, but like its answers are like, oh, Oh yeah. So it it asks the question of like because it sort of flips the the role right. It's it's the woman dominating the man. It's not the usual office place thing that you have heard you know going on since the beginning of time in workplace environments featuring men and women. Right. Um. But she even like very in like that masculine stereotype is even like you got to finish what you start. Yeah. You know like you're not going to finish kind of thing, which is like very that's very like subversive and it's very interesting to sort of play with and i tried to step back and say like okay what is there in this movie that i can look at beyond gender politics and the problem is 
almost nothing because if you right. take the gender politics out of the movie, which is 80% of the dialogue is just these dumb, troubling ideological reversals of someone being like, like, well, women really have a raw deal in the workplace, which is, tr- was very true in the nineties and is still right. true. And then Michael Douglas is just like, well, men commit suicide more often and die of heart attacks. It's all stupid shit like that. You, there, it's not that you couldn't play with this stuff. It's that, Michael Crichton and director Barry Levinson, who is like a pure kind of replacement level director, I would argue, they they don't have a satirical bone in their body. Right. That's the thing. It opens these interesting doors of like, well, you know, Michael Douglas does like slap his assistant on the butt. Like maybe he shouldn't do that. Right. But then like it totally forgives him from that. From like the rest at the end of the movie. Right. You know, or like this these those sort of. Um, you know, the totology sort of of that woman in his group who's like, he gives that whole like speech about how like, you know, no one ever thought that I would get the job. Like no one ever like, you know, and she gives this whole like great speech about, you know, the fact that she is put upon and like all the aggressions, you know, micro or otherwise that she perceives on a daily basis that she receives on a daily basis. Um, and then th- it's like, yeah, but like, you know, I'm going to go, the, the plot hangs with Dennis Miller's character, so we're going to cut over to him now. Like, the movie doesn't even get, the, like, the women in it are just sort of stock characters. Yeah, absolutely. It thinks it, it, yes, it thinks it is very smart because it has memorized the first line of a feminist rebuttal. Right. <laughs> and Which is not smart at all. Right. <laughs> just because, like, you know. And no one is willing to, even if not satire, no one is even willing to make a Verhovian mess of this at all no it's just not messy it's too precise so if you take the gender politics out of it it is a movie that asks wouldn't it be interesting if michael douglas who works for a company that does compression software and works in a strange brick building uh if there was a conspiracy to get him fired would that be interesting no it is not interesting no that's the thing is that like it's basically like saying this movie is sort of looking at the in-gen corporate meeting. <laughs> it's it's look it's like back on the back in the United States at the office building at the office headquarters of InGen, like the company that's reproducing dinosaurs. Let's not look at the dinosaurs. What if, you know, the not even an interesting employee, he's like the head of manufacturing. Right. What if they wanted what if they needed to hire like fire the edge of manufacturing, which parenthetically like I don't understand why they needed to fire him. This is a movie. Like the reason that the product wasn't working was because of them. Yeah. So if like they were afraid the merger was going to go under because of this faulty product, maybe they shouldn't have like fucked it up. It's a movie that exclaims, if you'll allow me, we've got Dodgson elsewhere. <laughs> <laughs> uh, this is, yeah, this movie is like a series of Dodgsons. Yeah. <laughs> Everybody's Dodgson. <laughs> oh my God. Barry Levinson clearly, like, misunderstood why there was, like, chemistry between uh, Michael Douglas and these other two women and why these other two movies were far more successful. It's like, you not only need to get, like, a beautiful woman, you need to get a beautiful woman who can act. And Demi Moore does not know how to do that. I mean, she's only been asked at this point, she's only famous for, like, St. Elmo's Fire, where she plays, like, the vapid pretty friend. Or, like, Striptease, where she plays, like, the vapid pretty woman. Or, like, whatever it happens to be. But these are not good movies. Well, she's like, pretty good a in fine... A Few Good Men and decent, Decent Proposal, but she can't make a turn like this. 
Yeah, she can't pull off like like sort of like sexual vixen slash like corporate saboteur. <laughs> that is not on her resume. No, certainly not. Well, I mean, it is because of this movie technically, but it shouldn't be. Right. Do we think Michael Douglas is that great of an actor? Let's get there. Let's get there. Um, but Michael Douglas is just the it's just the canvas upon which the psychosexual tale is is written. You know, right? That it hangs in whether his counterpart can like match and then destroy him. Absolutely, Michael Douglas is. I mean, what do you think about all the things he's not? He cannot give you breathtaking acting moments. He is not a good dancer. He does not have an incredible body. What he he's a good movie star. He can signify a certain kind well, of masculinity, which he does in Wall Street. He, he ultimately he has a very cynical body of work about what upper middle class white men in their 40s and 50s do. Exactly. And I think like the the interesting hand that this car, that the that this uh, movie does play, like what it needs to, is when they do get to the arbitration meeting. Yeah, and because you know that Demi Moore and Michael Douglas have had sex, but like then the dirty lawyer that works for Demi Moore is like, you guys like played with sex toys and there was sodomy and sex in public places like two to three times a day (laughs) and it's just like jesus like michael douglas who's like been the guy with like the toothpaste on his tie for most of this movie which is like over the course of a single week which is ridiculous by the way (laughs) um that's like you sort of hear this these list of like uh of horrible or not horrible things but kind of like perverse things that he's done and you're like yeah i can see that (laughs) like because it is michael douglas it is the guy who with the deep v in that nightclub with sharon stone and it certainly is that guy who didn't think twice before sleeping with glenn close when his wife was like at their country home that's the great thing about watching the movie in chronological order is you could pretend it's the evolution of the same man it 100 percent is yeah i mean you can almost play it out like he gets divorced from ann archer and then that's then he starts drinking and doing cocaine and becomes a police officer. <laughs> and then he decides to settle down, but he has this. It's almost as if uh, Sharon Stone like came to work at the tech company that he landed <laughs> at after the force kicked him off. That's exactly it. But in the meantime, she's like forgotten how to be. It's entrancing. almost like Disclosure is if you treat Disclosure as like a moral sequel yeah. to Basic Instinct, it like makes a lot more sense. It's a lot better. Oh, it's so much better movie. Yeah, you, know, you can forgive it for all these things that I am not able to get forgive it for. Can we get to? Should we rate this? Yeah. I can go first. In memorizing that first line of a feminist defense, like I talked about earlier, it has like an exhaustion with feminism that's like kind of upsetting. It's just like, God, are we done with feminism? No, (laughs) no. Um, Show me the litany of like movies that uh, where like women actually go through sexual harassment in the workplace. There are not any. Um, So there's just no, there's just no need. It's uncalled for. And like I said, if you strip away all of those things, it's just not exciting. Yeah, this, I mean, yeah, bad, I mean, to, bad. to put it simply, oh, bad, bad from you, yeah. uh, to put it, like, ideologically speaking, it's, like, women try to, because essentially she's trying to rise in the corporate world by, like, sabotaging Michael Douglas's career. Like, that's essentially what she does. And then patriarchy wins because, like, that's the way it should be. She gets laughed at at the end because she's a woman. Right. So, yeah, but now uh, this one, 
I want to call it like bad good, but it's but it isn't. No, it's so bad, I have to call. Bad. I have to call it bad bad. It's not exciting, uh, so you have nothing to distract you from the fact that it's upsetting. Are you gonna go? Are you gonna go about your life differently after seeing these? Uh... I'm certainly never having intercourse again. <laughs> Jesus Christ. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, I don't think you put any better than that. Well, everyone, thank you so much for being with us. And uh, what a trio this has been. Um, you can find all our past episodes on SoundCloud, uh, iTunes. We would love you to find the most on our website, berealguys.com. Real with two E's like a film reel. And uh, you can email us at berealguys at gmail.com, Facebook, Twitter. We're all over the place. Uh, buddy? I appreciate your Pal? I appreciate your time and your commitment. Yeah, I'm excited to uh, continue doing this podcast with you uh, indefinitely. Cheers for the conceivable future. And thanks to Jacob Knight for filling us in on uh, what we needed to know about just why Paul Verhoeven made a movie like that. Um, you can find his work at uh, birthmoviesdeath.com. And I think we are out, my friend. See ya. Bye. Everybody knows you've been discreet, but there were so many people you just had to be.